Good morning. If you don't see things how God sees things, and if you don't hear him when he's speaking for whatever reason, you won't see things as you should. You'll see everything wrong. You'll panic when you should be peaceful. You'll worry when you should be worshipping, and you will give up when you should have kept going. God wants you to see things as he sees things. He wants you to have his perspective as much as it is possible for us with our limited human abilities. God wants us to know what's going on. And that's one of the reasons why he inspired the early church leader, Paul, to write a letter to Christians in the region of Ephesus and then to make sure that that letter made it into the Bible. And that's why we're going to be spending this term Um, And next term, actually, in our morning meetings, looking through uh, this letter. It's a pretty short letter. There's only six chapters, but we're going to spend two terms on it. Three chapters this term, three chapters next, because it is just full of truth. It's full of God's perspective on life, on you, on the world, on him. Today, we're about to read from chapter 1, and it's just a torrent of praise pouring out of Paul as he considers some of the things that God has done for us. And we're actually going to spend four or five of our uh, sermons in this series looking just at this particular passage because it's rich, it's deep. There's loads that we need to know to get God's perspective on things. And what I'm going to focus on to get us started with is God's Uh, choosing of people to be his, to receive his love and his goodness. And as we read this passage and then consider it for the rest of our time together, I believe that God is going to give a fresh sense of perspective uh, to many people here. And he is going to give you peace. He's going to stir up praise in you. And he's going to help you to persevere. And if you're not a Christian here today, I believe God wants to show you some of himself, some of his goodness, and some of what is on offer to you through Jesus. So why don't we pray and then we'll get reading. Lord, we want to thank you so much that you're here, you're amongst us, you're speaking to us. We want to thank you that you you love us and that you want everyone here to, uh, to know the truth and to live according to it. So please, God, help us to do that. Help me to speak well. Holy Spirit, would you work powerfully in us? Give us ears to hear what you're saying and eyes to see, that we might see things as we should. Amen. So what I'm about to read was originally one single sentence in Greek. Uh, The English translators couldn't make that work, and so they've split it up into several sentences. Uh, But this is how Paul starts. He is just going for it with praise, pouring out his love to God, piling up the things that God has done. So this is Ephesians 1, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 onwards. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look how many references there are in this amazing passage to God's plan, God's intention, God's will, his choosing. Everything in red on that screen at the moment is a reference to God having chosen us. So we can see this is a key part of what Paul wants us to get in this passage. And what he does is he kind of zooms out his perspective as far as possible. In fact, beyond what's possible for us to understand and comprehend. He starts with God's choosing of us before the beginning of time. So try and think about the beginning of time, which you can't do because you are a creature who exists and was made in space and time. But before anything that we understand, God was there. And Paul concludes with a future inheritance that God has got ready for us in eternity to come. And if you want to try and imagine eternity to come, by all means, but good luck with that. And that's where Paul takes us. We're way beyond the boundaries of human experience or even comprehension. And so how, if we're thinking about these great things, how can we understand it? How can we get to grips with it? How can we get God's perspective on his choosing? Well, I want us to look at uh, someone's life that we know the start of on the earth and we know the end of on the earth. It's Joseph in the Old Testament. He is mostly famous for having an amazing coat of many colors, uh, (laughs) of which that is one awful example. That is actually one of the less amazing things about Joseph and his life. And as we look through this life story, we're going to see how Paul's perspective in Ephesians 1 is demonstrated in Joseph's life and how this can stir praise in us as it did in him, how it can give us peace and help us grow in perseverance as he did. And so that's what we're going to spend our time this morning doing, looking at Joseph and his life and God's plan. The only danger about doing this um, is that we only think in terms of an individual perspective. And uh, and naturally, you will think about yourself. Uh, But actually, when Paul is addressing uh, the Ephesians, he's talking to a lot of people. So this is God's plan for all of his people. We're going to tell it through an individual story. And we're going to see how God's purposes are worked out through that. So Joseph was born into a family that lived with promises from God. 
His great-grandfather was a man named Abraham, uh, who God suddenly appeared to and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. Abraham was not seeking God. Uh, He wasn't worshipping God. God suddenly appeared to him and said that that was what he was going to do. There was nothing uh, well-behaved or attractive about Abraham um, that made God go for him, but God went for him. God also promised Abraham a land for his descendants to live in as a place for the world to see God's goodness on display. And Abraham's part in all of this was to say, okay, and start following. Cutting a long story short, God miraculously gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a child, Isaac. And Isaac went on uh, to father two sons uh, called Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau was the older of the two, and so he would have expected to get the inheritance, to have carried the promises of God onto the next generation. But God said that it would be Jacob, actually, who would receive the promise, who would be the blessing to the world, and who would get the land to live in. But for the time being, Jacob and his family were nomadic. They didn't own land. They wandered around the place, and they had very little influence on anyone apart from themselves. This was Joseph's family background. And as is the same for all of us, we don't, we don't get to take credit for our family backgrounds. If there are people in our, descend- in our ancestors who we're very proud of, we might say, hey, did you know that so-and-so is related to me? But you can't really claim credit for that, can you? Because you didn't make that happen. It's, it's something that's happened to you, not something that you did. So that's what's going on with Joseph's background. In the same way, Paul says to us that God was at work for us way before we were on the scene. In fact, before anything that we've ever known or experienced, before the foundation of the world, God was at work for us. So in the same way that Joseph couldn't choose his family, couldn't choose to be brought into these blessings, but sovereignly was, so we find that we don't choose this, but we are brought into something. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was the 11th of them, and he was his father's favorite, hence he was given the coat of many colors. The Genesis narrator telling the story of Joseph, he won't let Joseph take credit for this either. He says it was because Joseph was a son of his father's old age. That's why he was favored. So again, (laughs) Joseph's like, hey, I got the coat. He's like, you got the coat because you were born when your dad was really old. You can't take credit for these things. When Joseph was 17, he had two dreams from God. In both dreams, he was seen as having authority over the rest of his family. Whose choice was this? It wasn't Jacob's. It wasn't Joseph's. It was God's. As an arrogant young man, perhaps Joseph saw God's blessing of him as a cause for pride. He didn't sense the responsibility that was going to come with it. And he forgot that his family had a history of unqualified and unlikely people being those who got the promises from God. So he thinks this must be all about me. And he's totally wrong. Back in Ephesians, Paul doesn't want us to make that same error. If you're a Christian, he doesn't want you to have any sense of pride that God chose you. Instead, we should be humbled that God chose us. Paul tells us that part of the plan was redemption through Christ's blood. This is how, Paul says, we get brought into this story in the moment of our lives. We only contribute our sins, our wrongdoing, which God graciously forgives through Jesus. 
So to be chosen as a Christian is to be recognized as one who needed rescuing, as one who needed someone else to pay the price for the things you've done wrong, as one who needed to be set free from a prison of our own creation. We haven't earned this at all. And I think that's part of the reason why we sometimes struggle to think about being chosen. Because we're happy to be chosen if it reflects well on us, aren't we? If someone says to us, well, there are many applicants for this job or this place at university, but we've chosen you, we like choice. Like, this is great. But nothing like that is going on here with Joseph. Nothing like that was going on here with you if you're a Christian. The preacher Charles Spurgeon recognized this, saying, I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That is the right perspective. And when we get that perspective, as Paul had got that perspective as he starts Ephesians, we will praise God gratefully rather than be impressed with ourselves. But Joseph hasn't got to that place yet. Joseph still thinks that the dreams and the choosing is all about him. And so rather unwisely, he told his brothers, who already had a reputation for violence and extreme behavior, he told them about his dreams that he was going to be in charge of all of them. And their reaction was unsurprisingly hostile. This doesn't legitimize what they did, but it does make it perhaps, again, not understandable. But he should have guessed that something like this might happen, I think. When they had him a long way away from their father, they attacked him. They thought about killing him, but because one of them was a bit nicer than the rest, they merely sold him into slavery into Egypt. Suddenly, Joseph's life seems to completely turn on its axis. The the direction he thought he was going in, suddenly he's going somewhere completely different. On arriving in Egypt, he was bought by a man named Potiphar, who was a senior government official, and he was put to work in Potiphar's household. And this is a huge moment in his life. Because what can we say about the choices that Joseph has made so far? Well, Not much, because we don't know much about them. He was born into a family of promise, which wasn't his choice. He was given dreams by God, which wasn't his choice. He was sold into slavery, which definitely wasn't his choice. In fact, the only choice we've known him make so far is to brag about dreams that he's had, and that hasn't gone so well. But at this moment, Joseph starts making good choices. Reality and promise must have seemed two very different things to Joseph in this stage. He's living with these dreams, but he is literally not living the dream. Because he's expecting greatness and success, and instead he is a slave. But rather than collapse into passivity, into helplessness, into bitterness, Joseph acted well in the situation he found himself in and worked hard. God blessed him as he did so. And again, why does God bless Joseph? Is it because he works hard? Well, it may have helped, but the reason the narrator says is because Joseph is part of Abraham's family, and to be part of Abraham's family is to be blessed and to carry God's blessing. 
Anyway, Joseph works hard, God blesses him, and soon he's in charge of Potiphar's entire household. Potiphar was a guy of great influence in Egypt, and so running a household like this would have been a role with significant responsibilities. You would be organizing people, money, supplies, events. It's a big job. Things seem to be improving. Things seem to be going well. He's still a long way from where he would like to be, but things are improving. But then Potiphar's wife asked him to go to bed with her. It's another huge moment. It's another critical moment in Joseph's life. And his attitude, his perspective here is vital to the decision that he makes. See, he could have concluded that God hadn't done much for him so far, given him some dreams, but they're nowhere near happening. And then by his own good efforts, he'd become prominent in Potiphar's household. And by his own good looks, he'd become prominent in Potiphar's wife's thoughts. If he'd had a day-to-day perspective and not an eternal one, he might have concluded, well, what has God ever done for me? What's to be gained by obeying him? And what could be better than Mrs. Potiphar? He refused to think this way. He refused to think this way. He said to her, no, I don't fancy you. He said to her, we might get caught. Didn't say those kind of things. He says, I will not sin against God. That is his perspective in this moment. I will not sin against God. Some of you are facing moments like this. Maybe you just suddenly arrived uh, here in the city, uh, university, suddenly you're just facing a whole load of choices. And it just feels like it's your story. Maybe you've been here for a long time and just subtly, something's suddenly coming into your life that's, that's a choice put before you. And you, you know, in the moment here, you're here on a Sunday, you're like, well, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. But you know that when you're in that circumstance, it's not going to feel like that. The only way out is to know that your life is not your own, that the story isn't yours to make up, that you must obey God. What would have happened if Joseph had succumbed? We don't know. We can't know. Let's not find out for ourselves. Paul said that God chose us that we might be holy and blameless before him. That is the story you are in, if you belong to him. And so Joseph refuses. Mrs. Potiphar keeps chasing him. He keeps refusing her. Eventually, he runs out of the house. If that's what he needs to do, that's what he will do. And so she claims that he had attacked her, and he's thrown into prison. A decade or so of imprisonment follows. So much for obeying God. So much for God's plan. He must have thought that, mustn't he? We think that when we do the things that we know God wants us to do, and yet it's still hard, it's still difficult. Things, in fact, go the opposite of what we want to. We think, but I've done the thing. Why haven't you done the thing? Well, in case you're wondering, being chosen by God and obeying God does not make your life any easier. If anyone tells you that, they haven't read this. Or lived very long, I think. This is why we need the eternal perspective that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1, if we're to persevere until the end. Eugene Peterson described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. 
That's what it's like. That's what it feels like. And we can be confident in an eternal destination that we're heading towards, even if we don't understand every twist and turn along the way. We know where we're going to. We can be peaceful about getting there because God has said he will get us there. See, Joseph is about as far as possible from where he thinks God wants him to be. If he panics at this point, if he gives up on God, he loses everything. But God has a plan, and Paul says about us, in him, we have an obtain, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, according to the counsel of his will. So God has made the plan, he knows what he's doing, and he's working it out, and he's working it out in your life. And that's why you've got to know, you've got to hear things like that in the context of a story of Joseph being in prison. Because you, you, when you hear that, you think that means my life goes smoothly and well. And then you look at what it means, and it could mean prison. And false accusation. And job loss. But let's just drop a couple of spoilers in. If you're not familiar with Joseph's story, he's going to become prime minister of Egypt. That's what's going to happen to him. And I want to say to you, if you're a Christian, let me just drop a, it's less of a spoiler, it's more of an encouragement. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're going to spend eternity with him. I don't know where you are now. I don't know what's going on now. But this is how the story ends, Paul says. For all those who are in Christ, an eternal inheritance is to come. The moment you are in right now does not have to define you. The next thing we see of Joseph, he's running the prison while still being a prisoner. Again, the narrator says, the blessing of God was with him. And again, we must assume that he'd applied the skills that he'd learned in Potiphar's house as well. And he still believes God. He still believes that dreams are significant. I mean, you think, really? Look how dreams are going for you, Joseph. But when two of his fellow prisoners have dreams, he says, I can interpret those for you. Because God speaks to me and has spoken to me through dreams. One of the prisoners, uh, they, were both work, they both worked for Pharaoh. One of them was uh, restored to Pharaoh's court. And you think, and Joseph says to him, could you let Pharaoh know that he, so I would be set free, that I was involved with you. You're going to get favor from Pharaoh, so please could you use that favor to get me out of here? And the guy says, sure, sure, sure. And then he's back at the court, and it's so exciting that he completely forgets about Joseph. Who, if he'd been set free, would have done, I don't know what, probably would have tried to go back to his family. It's the latest in a long line of disappointments for Joseph to deal with. He's still stuck in prison sometime later when Pharaoh has two dreams. And no one in Egypt can interpret them. No one knows what they're about. And as this is being talked about in the court, suddenly Pharaoh's, uh, suddenly one of Pharaoh's servants, who just happens to be Joseph's old cellmate, thinks to himself, oh, wait, I know someone. I know someone who can help. This guy in Pharaoh's court just so happens to know the only man in Egypt with the God-given gift of interpreting dreams. And so Joseph is sent for and is set before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and told to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And that's what he does. Giving God all the credit 
It says, interpretation is from God alone. Let me tell you, God's spoken to me. Here's your answer. And um, by the way, here's how I think you should fix it. What's going to happen? It's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. He says, here's, here's a plan for dealing with that. And Pharaoh says, you seem to have a lot going for you. I'm going to make you prime minister. Because if you're Pharaoh, you can do that. And if you're God, you can do that. So we've now seen Joseph make several significant decisions, haven't we? Decisions to follow God without worrying about the short-term outcome. Big moments have led to this, but events are still really out of his hands. But now God's purposes have become much clearer. And there are moments like that in our lives. There are moments when we get it, when we suddenly look back, I see how this all came together so that this would happen. Ah, it makes sense to me now. And there are also lots of other moments when it won't feel like that at all. Ephesians 1 stops us from despairing when those kind of moments come and it gives us cause to praise when the, when the clarity moment comes. The promised famine comes after seven years of plenty and through Joseph's leadership, Egypt had plentiful supplies for themselves and for the nations around them. And the nations come to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy food. And among those who do so are Joseph's brothers. And they don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. And he's the prime minister, and he's at a distance. And they don't know who he is, but they bow down before him. And oh, look what's happened. The dream, the dreams have been fulfilled. There's then a very long-winded reconciliation. And Joseph invites his family to come to Egypt where they can be sure of food and safety. And the story, as it comes to its end, has Joseph make this concluding statement. As he looks back on his life, and as his brothers say, as his brothers are worried because they still remember what they did to him. They think he might still be out to get them. And he says to them this in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. It's a statement full of praise, a statement full of thankfulness and astonishment and correct perspective. Paul tells us that Christians will see things like this one day. It's not about becoming prime minister or having your dreams come true, as it were. It's about the fact that one day, Paul says we will uh, receive our inheritance to the praise of God's glory. That's what happened. That's what will happen. If you're a Christian, you put your trust in Jesus, you'll die or Jesus comes back, whichever one happens first, you will see him, you will realize what's about to happen, and then for all of, the, all of eternity, you will praise him for what he's done for you. And because we're told now that this is going to happen. And because we know that it cost God his son's life to make it happen for us. And because we know that God planned this, not because we obliged him or because our behavior was anything that would attract him to us, but that he loved us and freely did it for us. Because of all these things, we praise him now. We love him and worship him and delight in him now. We join with Paul, we do say, yeah, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
and on and on and on, Paul goes, and on and on and on, we should go. Because nothing's better than this. Nothing's more important. Nothing's more wonderful. And that feels like the end of Joseph's story, doesn't it? And that's how, uh, that's how the musical ends. Uh, that's how the film ends. That's how we think the story ends. But it's not the end of the story. Because on his deathbed, Joseph makes his relatives promise that they will take his bones with them when they go to the land that God had promised Abraham. Why does he do this? It's because he knows that he's an exile in Egypt. He's the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. But he's not home. He's got a family, he's got children, he's got relatives. In fact, he's got everyone who's related to him. But they're not home. The promise that God had made to his family was yet to be fulfilled. If God blesses you in this life, don't think you've made it. The best is yet to come. Centuries later, and after the mighty miracles by which God uh, drew out Israel from slavery in Egypt and then brought them into the land that he promised Abraham all those centuries before, at the end of the book that describes them taking over the land, the book of Joshua, we read that Joseph's bones were buried in the land of promise, in the land that his family had believed God for. Paul talks about our inheritance, the end of our story, being eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the last piece of a perspective that just refuses to give you credit, doesn't it? Because how are you going to do that? How are you going to get into this eternity? Well, I've got good news. It's not down to you. I mean, you'll have to die, but that won't be really up to you either. And God will bring you into his promises. God will bring you into what he's always intended for you. And this is why I want my destiny to be in God's hands and not my own. This is why I I don't ever want to think, yes, I'm in charge of my life. Yes, this is down to me. From start to finish, God is stronger than me and better than me. I can rest secure in him. Joseph's life is pretty dramatic. So dramatic that people have made dramatic plays and films about it. And there are loads of people making real decisions all the way through it. But we are not meant to be left in any doubt as to who the author and main actor is. It was God who gave the promises to undeserving Abraham. It was God who gave the inheritance to cheating Jacob. It was God who gave the dreams to arrogant Joseph. It was God who put Joseph in the only place on earth where he could save his family and the nations. And it was God who set Israel free from Egypt and established them in the land where he could be buried. Joseph wasn't alive when this plan began. He wasn't alive when the plan was completed. The bits he was alive for, he had significant decisions to make. He was involved. He honoured God. And that was vital. But his life was always in God's hands. And this is what it's like to be chosen. This is how we experience what Paul celebrates 
in Ephesians 1. We make choices, so does everyone around us. We have freedom and responsibility, and the choices we make have consequences. That's why God was speaking to us uh, this morning about responding to him. But it's God who rules over all. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our lives are not random. They are not accidental. However much evidence you may feel you have to the contrary going on right now. Even if you were conceived without your parents expecting it, God knew about you before time began. Even if you feel confused with where you are and what's going on right now, God knows what's happening. Even when things seem to have gone totally wrong, you haven't reached the end of the story yet. Even when you seem stuck in a situation you don't want to be in, God is working for your good like he always has been and like he always will be. And the reason he does all this is yes to the praise of his glory, but also because he loves you. All of us here are to a greater or lesser extent in the middle of our days. And so it's difficult to fully understand this mighty story that we've been brought into that Ephesians 1 tells us about. And that's why God gave us that, so that we would know enough to know that we don't know it all but we'd know enough to know that we would praise God, that we could trust him. We won't, this is really important, I think Christians sometimes get confused, they expect that they'll understand how every piece of the story comes together, how, where every twist and turn is going. God doesn't give us those guarantees. But what he does say and show is that we can trust him as the author of our lives and we can rest in our belonging to him. Do you need to get this perspective? Have you forgotten about it? Has life just seeming so chaotic in your own life, uh, in the news that you're reading? You think all these things are going on. I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea how this is all working out. Paul's prayer was given to you so that you could see and savor what God is doing, has done, and will do. With this correct perspective, we can be peaceful even in the midst of storms. We can praise him wherever we are today. And we can persevere until the day we see him finish what he started. Final thing, what if you, what if you know this isn't true about you today? Paul explained how you get connected into this story. He says, you believe in the gospel of your salvation. You believe in the news that Jesus came for you, died for you, was risen to new life for you. That's how it happens. You don't do anything that gives you any credit. You just trust. And you begin to learn to follow him. If that's you today, you're visiting, but you're not a Christian. God is inviting you today to choose him. Listen to this promise from Jesus, which really brings together everything that we've been thinking about today and is an offer of life to you. It's in Matthew 11. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise 
and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.